Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone. I just wanted to say a big and sincere thank you to all your kindness and generosity during this difficult time. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 230, The Sack of Edessa. We last left our narrative with the death of John II, Komnenos. After marching to the gates of Antioch and demanding that Prince Raymond hand the city over, the emperor was rebuffed. Raymond managed to prevaricate long enough that John left for Cilicia, promising to be back in spring. But for John, spring never came. After cutting himself on an arrow while hunting, the emperor grew sick and died at Easter, 1143. John's two eldest sons had also died the previous summer, leaving the succession in doubt. In the end, the army acclaimed Manuel, John's youngest son, who was present in Cilicia. Before we get to what Manuel did next... Let's talk about our sources. I mentioned last time that we have two Byzantine historians who covered the reigns of John and Manuel. They are John Kinemus and Nikitas Coniates. Both men were born after John died, hence the lack of details on life in Constantinople during his reign. Both men are accused by modern historians of having biases which colour their description of Manuel biases that we need to be aware of going forward. Coniates is going to be with us all the way to the sack of Constantinople in 1204 AD. He was in the city when it was taken by the Crusaders and had to sneak his family out. He was a high official by that point and so will be a key witness to the late 12th century. As we've discussed before though, the fact that Coniates wrote his history after this terrible event inevitably colours his perception. It was Coniates who described Alexius's family as dysfunctional and claimed that Anna tried to kill John, all of which has a basis in truth but seems to be designed to make a moral point, as in the rot in Byzantium set in with Alexius and continued to decay until 1204 AD. This is something that we all do, we look backwards from a calamity to find root causes and assign blame. Understandably, then, Coniates sees flaws in the reign of Manuel, which he thinks led towards disaster. 
Kinemus, by contrast, has biases in the other direction. He was an imperial secretary who attended the emperor on several of his campaigns. He was then commissioned by Manuel to write a history of his reign. Naturally, then, Kinemus's history presents Manuel as a brilliant warrior and leader. Now, that doesn't make his history invalid, as with Ataliates following Romanos Theogenes or Procopius watching Belisarius, he can bring insights that we wouldn't get from anyone else. But we must comb his text for any whitewash used to cover up Manuel's failings. Obviously, I will be leaning on modern historians like Paul Magdaleno and Michael Angold to untangle the truth from the exaggeration as best I can. Manuel Comnenos was born in November 1118, about three months after Alexius died. He joined his father, John, on campaign from a young age and took quickly to the life of a soldier. As you may recall from a couple of episodes ago, Manuel raced to help some troops out of a jam during the siege of Neo-Caesarea, fighting hand-to-hand with the Turks. John publicly praised him for his boldness, but privately scolded him for putting himself in danger. Quite a lot of imperial propaganda has survived from this era, and I thought you might enjoy hearing the sycophantic language used by one writer when describing this incident. Hail, purple-born third Sebastocrator, not in inferiority of rank, but of age. Cub of the mighty lion, chick of the golden peacock, the high-flying falcon's soaring child, the general son of a commander-in-chief, brave soldier, the image of your father's ways and graces, of his firm arm and open hand. You showed whose seedling and root you were when you alarmed the Persians with your roar alone, turning them to rout and to unseemly flight. Byzantine writers tended to classicize when talking about the empire's enemies, so Turks and Arabs alike become Persians, just as any steppe tribe become Scythians. I mean, they're all barbarians, aren't they? At John's death, Manuel was 24 years old. Coniates says he was swarthy, like his father, tall, handsome, a charismatic figure, popular with the troops. He was the youngest of John's eight children, and as I mentioned at the start, his two oldest brothers had died unexpectedly during the march across Anatolia. John had sent his third son, Isaac, back to Constantinople to be the face of the regime at home but neither he nor Manuel yet carried the title of Vasilefs. Whether John actively chose Manuel or just nodded to the inevitable, it seems that Manuel's presence on the ground was key to his elevation. As you know, John had assembled a winning army, a military machine that had battered the empire's enemies into submission. That army was currently leaderless and vulnerable, Perhaps it was better to be cruel to Isaac and bypass him in order to make sure that the army got home in one piece. I don't know if John expected Manuel to march on to Antioch and complete his father's mission, but understandably Manuel's first priority was to get back to Constantinople and secure his position on the throne. While he marched overland, he sent his father's corpse by sea 
along with imperial agents who would act on his behalf. When they arrived home, they imprisoned his brother Isaac and secured the capital. As you can imagine, this caused significant unrest in Constantinople. The news that John was dead and that Manuel would succeed him began to filter out at the same time. Manuel's allies had to act quickly to snuff out any resistance from amongst the Komnenian clan. Manuel's uncle Isaac, who had rebelled against John, was imprisoned before he could act. And then another plot was detected centred on John Roger, a Norman defector who'd married Manuel's sister. By the time Manuel reached the Bosphorus in July, all was quiet, but he was well aware that many amongst his own family coveted the throne and doubted his legitimacy. He handed over a huge bribe, a donation, to the clergy of the Hagia Sophia, who were also unsure about the succession, and they eventually crowned him. Manuel's older brother Isaac was then released from captivity, and the two men appeared publicly reconciled, but the new emperor must have felt far from secure on the throne. Manuel's unexpected rise created all sorts of problems at court. Those who'd been close to his father and brothers suddenly found themselves much lower down the pecking order than they'd anticipated. Of course, for a fortunate few, this meant elevation to much higher stations. One such person was a woman named Bertha of Sulzbach. Bertha was Manuel's fiancée. As you'll recall, central to John's foreign policy had been an alliance with the German emperor. The German monarchs were staunch enemies of the Normans in southern Italy. So long as the Germans were threatening the Normans, the Byzantines had no fear of another Bohemond-style invasion. To this end, John had engaged his youngest and to some extent least important son, Manuel, to Bertha, the German emperor's sister-in-law. She had arrived a few months earlier and settled down to wait for the return of the army. Of course, now, her husband-to-be returned as the emperor. This put the Byzantines in an awkward position. If Manuel was going to marry a foreigner, she would need to be of impeccable pedigree and carry a dowry worthy of such an honour. Needless to say, Bertha, merely the sister-in-law of an emperor, was not who they would have chosen. She was also not to Manuel's tastes. She was not a stunning beauty, nor did she care much for the make-up or dressing-up that women at the Byzantine court went in for. Facts that made her the subject of both mockery and praise from different quarters. Manuel played for time. He continued the engagement, but dispatched envoys to Germany to discuss the matter. He would eventually marry her two and a half years later, after the German emperor agreed to some sort of increase in her dowry. Interestingly, in the meantime, Roger of Sicily, the leading Norman in the region, had attempted to make peace with Constantinople, offering a marriage alliance of his own. In many ways, this would have suited Byzantium, but having gone so far down the diplomatic road with the Germans, it was hard to turn back. Manuel and Bertha would have two daughters, and the emperor was publicly respectful of his wife, though privately he saw various mistresses. 
Back in 1143, Manuel felt he couldn't afford to march back to Antioch, but he still wanted to bring Prince Raymond to heel. So the following spring, he dispatched a force by sea to raid the prince's territory. These troops landed in Cilicia, made sure the area was secure, and then entered the lands of Antioch. Raymond marched out to meet them, and the two sides ended up camping quite near one another. In the small hours of the morning, the Romans got the better of Raymond's scouts, causing a panic, and the army of Antioch fled ignominiously back to their city. The Byzantine troops raided the suburbs and then headed home. This defeat seems to have seriously dented Raymond's confidence. The Crusader states were all desperately short of manpower. Not enough knights had remained in the Holy Land to defend what they had won. And now even a Byzantine expeditionary force could rout the best troops that Antioch had to offer. Raymond seems to have been so enfeebled that when news reached him later that year that Edessa was under siege, he felt he could do nothing to help. Edessa, over 200 miles to the east of Antioch, was the most exposed of the Crusader cities. It was much closer to the Syrian desert than the Mediterranean and was surrounded by Muslim states. That siege would end in the bloody capture of the city and the slaughter of the Latins inside. But since that event is outside of the strict orbit of Byzantium and sets up next week's episode, we'll save it for later. Interestingly, neither Coniates nor Kinemus mentions the sack of Edessa at all, suggesting that neither thought it was a major event in Manuel's reign. They were very much mistaken, as we'll get to later. In the aftermath of the loss of Edessa, Prince Raymond of Antioch was out of options. The county of Edessa had protected his entire eastern flank. Antioch's territory now lay invitingly open to attack. Raymond had no choice but to beg the Byzantines for help. The prince sailed for Constantinople and asked for an audience with Manuel. The Vasilevs ignored Raymond for several days in order to show him his true place in the world. Eventually, Raymond was allowed to enter the Pantocrator Monastery, where he got down on his knees at the foot of John's tomb. After watching Raymond apologise to his dead father for his duplicity, Manuel embraced the prince. Raymond was given gifts and assurances of Byzantine support, and in exchange he once again swore loyalty to the Roman Empire and became Manuel's vassal. At the time, this probably seemed like a victory for the Byzantine court. Antioch was back in the fold, and Raymond was dependent on the Roman military. But as we'll discuss at the end of the episode, it was yet another near miss in the endless quest to reclaim Antioch. It was now the summer of 1146, and during the previous few years, the Turks had inevitably begun raiding imperial territory. In fact, the Sultan of Iconium himself was out in the field that year. His forces were operating not far from Sesopolis, the Byzantines' forward base on the plateau. Once Manuel's men were ready, he drove straight for the Sultan's position. The Romans blew through the Turkic scouts sent to delay them, which prompted the Sultan to abandon his camp and retreat. Manuel chased after him, defeating his vanguard on the road to Iconium as the Sultan, Masud, continued to withdraw. 
Massoud knew what he was doing, though. He sent troops ahead to garrison his capital, while also sending word to the Danishmans that he needed reinforcements. Manuel soon arrived before the city and put it under siege. This was not a serious attempt at encirclement, just a show of force to try and cow the sultan. The Romans had marched a long way by this point, and news soon reached them that Masud had gathered fresh riders and was on his way back. Manuel was now the one ordering a retreat. The Byzantines had stumbled into a rather dangerous situation. They had to retrace their steps for about 250 miles before they would be safe again. And since they had lots of baggage and slow-moving foot soldiers with them, it was easy for the faster-moving Turks to catch up with them. Our historian John Kinemus was not present on this campaign, but gives a very detailed description of the Byzantine retreat. According to him, Manuel made thorough preparations at each stage, establishing safe camps for the army and setting up ambushes to catch any Turks who were getting too close. He also claims that Manuel desperately wanted to fight in person, and repeatedly put himself in position to confront groups of Turks who were searching for his men. The emperor would sometimes wait at an ambush site himself and then charge groups of Turks with his lance. Kinemus puts this down to Manuel's youthful exuberance, as well as the influence of the Latin knights he served with, who not only put thoughts of glory in his head, but told him it was tradition to perform feats of bravery shortly after getting married, which John had done earlier that year. Quite what to make of these stories I don't know. They took place long before Kinemus was involved in the administration, so he clearly heard them second-hand, They probably grew in the telling, and as written, they seem to describe the emperor charging the enemy on his own much of the time, which would never have happened. Most likely he was accompanied by the cream of the Byzantine cavalry, in which case it's not implausible that Manuel could have personally led the rearguard. Eventually, though, the Vasilevs took an arrow to the ankle, which could have been serious, and withdrew to the centre of his army. The Romans made it back to safety with a minimum of losses, but it was a graphic demonstration of the difficulties of campaigning on the plateau. The nomads would always have the advantage of speed. They could flee before your advance and then catch up with you if you ran. It's difficult to know exactly what Manuel wanted from this campaign. He was probably just looking to scare the Sultan of Iconium into agreeing a peace, while also gaining some much-needed legitimacy and getting the army used to their new commander. I suppose, then, the campaign was a success, but it sounds like he got carried away and needlessly put the army in danger, something his father rarely did. Neither he nor the Sultan can have been entirely pleased with their summer's work, and worrying news was waiting for them when they returned to their respective capitals. A new crusade had been called. Thousands of Latin knights were making preparations to march once more for Jerusalem, and the rumour was that they planned on crossing the plateau to get there. It was, of course, the sack of Edessa which prompted this new armed pilgrimage. 
So let's just talk about that event in more detail. We've already talked plenty about Raymond of Antioch, but do you remember his comrade-in-arms, Jocelyn of Courtney? And now, of course, known as Count Jocelyn of Edessa. Jocelyn was the man who stirred up a riot in Antioch to drive John Komnenos out of the city. Both Raymond and Jocelyn were conflicted in the face of Byzantine ambitions. On the one hand, they didn't want the Romans to take over their territories, but on the other, they really needed their help. Antioch and Edessa had come under serious military pressure from the local Muslim emir. This was Zengi, a highly competent warlord who by this point controlled a block of territory in northern Syria and Iraq, including Mosul and Aleppo. Antioch and Edessa were isolated from the rest of the Crusader states by the geography of the region, meaning they were far more exposed to attacks from Zengi's growing power than their brethren further south. The presence of the Byzantine army in the region had kept Zengi at bay, but with John dead and Maniwil back home, the emir had a clear path to take advantage of Crusader weakness. I should be clear that Zengi was not really concerned with the Latins. The Crusader states didn't have the manpower to threaten the Muslim polities further inland. Zengi was far more interested in subduing rival Muslim powers, and it was one such group who contacted Count Jocelyn to forge an alliance against Zengi in 1144. So in the autumn of that year, Jocelyn took his forces north to link up with this group in the foothills of the Taurus Mountains. Zengi's army was on the march there right now, and the feeling was that only by uniting could they drive him away. But Jocelyn did not fully understand Zengi's ambitions or capabilities. Where Edessa could only field a few hundred knights and some locally recruited foot soldiers, Zengi commanded a full army with specialised troops and siege engineers. When the emir heard where Jocelyn was marching, he decided to change the game. He swiftly diverted his entire force towards the now very lightly defended city of Edessa. Zengi's men appeared before the gates in November, stunning the terrified populace inside. The late Roman walls of the city were a formidable obstacle, but with few experienced men to defend them and Jocelyn several weeks' march away, things did not look good. It took Zengi's men a month to break through the walls. They bombarded it, they tried to climb it, but in the end undermining did the trick. On Christmas Eve, a long section of the walls collapsed, the army poured in, and the city was sacked. This defeat was a complete shock to everyone. Jocelyn was understandably devastated and had to find refuge elsewhere. Raymond rushed to Byzantium for help, and the rest of Outremir was horrified at the news. The mirage of Christian invulnerability had been shattered. People began to speculate about a domino effect. Antioch could be next, and then how long before the Muslims were marching south towards Tripoli and Jerusalem? Back in Western Europe, opinion was outraged. A divinely sanctioned kingdom, won by the blood of Christian heroes, had fallen. Something had to be done. A new armed pilgrimage must be called to restore the situation, and this time, leading noblemen just wouldn't do. 
kings themselves must take the cross and lead their armies to Edessa. And there must be no question of sailing directly for friendly ports. We must retrace the steps of Raymond, Baldwin, and Bohemond. Let us march immediately for Constantinople. A nice cliffhanger for next week, I'm sure you'll agree. While you're waiting for the Second Crusade to arrive on Manuel's doorstep, you might just be thinking ahead to Christmas. If there is anyone in your life, probably you, who would like a Byzantine-themed present, then can I just remind you about HighSpeedHistory.com. Not only do they have a range of specific Byzantine merchandise, but some of it was inspired by you, the listeners of this podcast. It was your idea to create Justinian and Belisarius-themed t-shirts, Hippodrome faction iPhone cases, and a Heraclius mug. So if there is someone in your life who would like a Byzantine-themed gift in their stocking, then please go to highspeedhistory.com forward slash Byzantium. And if you use the code Byzantium at checkout, you'll get $1 or £1 off every item you purchase, and I'll get a little kickback for sending you there. And not only that, but this discount will apply to anything you buy from their equally fabulous Greek and Roman stores, which you can find at highspeedhistory.com. They ship worldwide, and the discount will apply whatever currency you're working in. One warning, though, there is a deadline for orders to reach you in time for the holidays. So get your bags, towels, stickers, bookmarks, and clocks ordered before December the 7th in order to avoid disappointment. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.